Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. In his role as label manager, John Berry is one of the central figures at Compact, the celebrated cologne outfit that has recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. Although originally from Vancouver, his roots in electronic music are tied to New York, which is where he made the transition from punk rocker to raver. Berry fell in with the Brooklyn scene that centred on labels like Lenny D's Industrial Strength, with whom he scored his first job in the industry as an unpaid intern. After some time spent working in PR, he wound up at the Four Sink and Mill Plateau stable, and through the latter met Compact's Wolfgang Voigt, who was releasing his music as gas through the label. Fast forward a few years and Barry made a move over to Cologne and was welcomed into the Compact family, who he's now been working for for the last six years. On the occasion of Compact's ongoing 20th birthday celebrations, we took the opportunity to chat with Barry about the inner workings of one of dance music's most famous institutions. Should I just start from the beginning? In yeah, a way? of okay. course. Um, I moved to New York in 1994. Uh, well, I didn't move. I kind of went out there to visit a friend uh, from Vancouver. I was coming out from Vancouver and uh, kind of arrived into the city and was remembered we were driving over the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, honestly, I, I burst into tears. I just, I just, I felt like I was home for something. Something really clicked in me about New York, and that whole realization anything's possible and all that. And we went to a, see another friend that I knew from Vancouver at this cafe. She got me a job immediately. She was like, "Look, if you want to stay here, you can." And I was like, "You know what? Screw it. I'm not taking that return ticket home." And uh, started working at this place, Sidewalk Cafe on Avenue A, and. Uh, at that point, I really wasn't listening to any dance music or electronic music whatsoever. I was a punk kid. Um, I was super happy to be in New York because at that time there was a lot of really cool hardcore bands coming up at the time. And, you know, it just felt good. And, and the cafe that I was working at, a lot of the bands would come into in the nights. And I was working the graveyard shift. Um, shortly after that, I uh, met this girl and uh, she introduced me to a friend who was working at Earache Records, which is a grindcore label, you know, which was doing like Napalm Death. And, and so I got brought in and they, they uh, gave me a position as an intern, like an unpaid position. And I proceeded to work there for the next, God, I worked there for about a year for free. I was going in every day and then working nights um, at this cafe. So I was basically sleeping for like three hours at a time. I had no life, but I was super into it. And I just was fascinated with how records, you know, how the machine came. And I really felt that this was my calling, you know, it was the um, first thing. So at Earache, they um, licensed this compilation. And at the time in Brooklyn, there was this pretty large uh, hardcore techno scene happening. And one of the main guys behind it was uh, Lenny D who, you know, started out, I guess, historically, he is kind of one of the techno founders of the New York scene. Um, he released some of the first, you know, American techno music even in, in the early 90s. 
And uh, at that time, I really didn't have any idea about that or any of the history. But I was like, this compilation I was really fascinated by. It was like anywhere from 140 to 220 BPM, you know, just intense music. And Eric was kind of going at it like, this is the new grindcore, this is the new metal. And I started researching it and I was just like, wait a minute, there's this monstrous scene existing in the US, this huge scene and it's this rave scene and there's all these parties that are happening in Brooklyn, you know, these, at the time they were called storm raves that Frankie Bones was deeply involved with at the time. And there was just the digital domain crew from New Jersey was doing these amazing parties. And I just started really feeding into it. And, and I sat, you know, they brought me into some of the meetings because I was so into it. And slowly I started realizing we came up with different campaigns to approach it. And the CD came out and this was called Industrial Fucking Strength. And uh, it just, you know, it, it sold like an amazing amount of copies in the first month. It was something like over 50,000 copies. It was massive. And uh, it really signified a change, I think, in bringing the general public awareness to that whole community. Because I needed a job and I was getting really sick and tired of working all night and working all day at this label, I was really desperate to get a job. And Lenny caught notice of the work that I was putting into that and uh, decided to give me a job. So I ended up going to work out in Bay Ridge, um, you know, near where Saturday Night Live was being filmed, working out of this basement. And I was kind of thrown in there with really, you know, at that time I'd been calling record stores, you know, checking in to make sure they had the new Anal Cunt record and the new Napalm Death. That's basically, and I was packing envelopes. And I got thrown in there as um, a product manager, which is basically in charge of all the manufacturing of the records. And uh, yeah, for the next three years, well, actually within the first, just within the first month, the label manager, she walked out left Lenny on his own. And Lenny at that time was DJing all the time. And I was kind of thrown into dealing with his bookings and also basically label managing this company with really no experience whatsoever. Um, and, and with Lenny going out and DJing on the weekends and then basically coming in during the week and working on the label. There was a few other people that I'd worked with, fortunately, that I worked with, which really helped um, allow me to gain some of the experience, but I was really thrown into the lion's den and didn't have any experience. But through that, I got very much exposed to the whole scene. So what you ended up doing was something that resembled label management? I, in a sense, yeah. Like I was technically called that. You know, I definitely didn't know really what I was doing at the time, but I had a lot of passion and enthusiasm. And I think Lenny really saw into that. Um, and he really believed that I had... The chance and we really worked together very well it was a great experience and I, and I was also very much interested in what was going on in the community the first thing that really gravitated and it still stays with me is um you know i think it's from my punk rock backgrounds or just growing up as you know someone who really related to the diy movements and 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 community building and you know going you know helping put on shows as a kid and i just really related to the way the whole hardcore scene was you know, really moving at the time and, and how, yes, it was rave, those big pants and the lollipops and all that. But at the same time, there was this genuine, uh, you know, realness behind everything that was going on then. I imagine things were pretty chaotic around that time in terms of the industry. And I, I guess in, in New York, it would have been almost a fledgling industry. It was, yeah. Like there was a lot, we were doing really well because um, in Europe, um, the whole Dutch Gabber scene was massive. 
Um, Thunderdome was bringing in, we're selling like millions of CDs. It was a big franchise. We did a lot of licensing with ID&T, this company at the time then. It really generated an income that helped support and, and build this community. There was a decent amount of money coming in at the time. Um, I think it's always been a struggle since I've been in this scene. The, but the parties that were happening at the same time, especially in Brooklyn, were, were really, you know, this is like 96, 97. You know, they, they, were, they were really going off. Like it was, there was something really special happening. And what was the evolution of, of that and that time and that scene? It, it kind of, I think like I worked until 99 for Lenny. Um, what I felt is that the the rave scenes it, it was growing at a massive rate. You know, uh, guys like Pascal from Insomnia, who's now um, doing um, uh, Electric Daisy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was a huge part. We worked very closely with Pascal on the West Coast with a lot of their their parties. The scenes were very different. There was also this growing concern and impact of um, drugs in the parties and um, ketamine. And, and especially around 98, really started taking a huge, it, it had a huge impact on the overall parties themselves, the vibe of the parties. The kids would just be, you know, sitting on the floor in the corners just in a daze. It, it, you really, the whole vibe of what was going on in these events was really decaying. But um, it was obviously a very underground movement. It still remains. Like Lenny still, industrial strength still lives. He's still DJing all the time. You know, there's a, there is this, undercurrent scene of you know hardcore parties still happening uh, but uh, I think the unfortunate circumstances of industrial strength is that the costs of running the label um, the priorities of what was going on with the label and the issues um, surrounding the overhead and everything and probably just you know bad business management I guess unfortunately caused it to close down in 99. And what was the next move for you? I guess for me, the next, yeah, like I was unemployed in New York, a bit concerned about what I was going to do, and uh, I didn't want to get out of music. I heard that there was this company called Kuiperinia that was looking for a publicist, and they were also looking for a retail sales manager. I was like, well, I've never done publicity. Like Lenny at that time, never, we never did any promo whatsoever. He was vehemently against it. Um, and then, uh, was that true of uh, many others in the scene at the time? It was quite common, you right, know what okay. I mean? Like we'd send out records, but there was a lot more vinyl. Like this was the days when vinyl was the mail outs, you know what I mean? There was no, we'd sometimes burn CDs, but it was vinyl was the mainstay. Um, actually, I could tell you a little funny story about that, my ignorance back then. Um, when, I, when I was at Industrial Strength, like I guess it was like the second year, first, second year that I worked there. Lenny would be out of the office, and of course, I'm taking calls all the time, and, and there's this guy, Richard, who would always call, and he's like, look, um, I've been taken off the promo list, and I, I'd love to get the new records, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, we're not doing any promo, sorry, blah, 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 you know, we're not doing anything. You know, at the time, at that point, I really only knew the industrial strength characters. So he would call, and he's like, hey, it's Richard again, is Lenny there? And I was like, well, he's not around then, and I'm sorry, we, we can't put you on the list. He's like, can you please tell him that uh, Richard James is calling. So of course, uh, Lenny comes in and I'm like, hey, there's this guy Richard James calling up all the time. And he's just like, yeah, well, what's up? And he, well, he wants promos. Well, send them to the guy. And I was like, well, you told me not. He's like, it's 
Richard James. And I was like, who the hell is Richard James? He's like, it's Aphex Twin. And I'm like, who the hell is Aphex Twin? And, that, and, and he's just like, oh my God. And he's like, you're coming to my mom's house. And so that night, it was a life-changing moment for me, actually. That night, Lenny takes me out to his mom's house in, in, in deep, deep Brooklyn. And uh, mom's Italian Brooklyn, you know, family. She's cooking marinara. And at that time, I was like bone thin. She's like, oh, Lenny, you're, look at this guy. He's got nothing in his bones, you know, nothing but bones. And he's like, can I eat? And Lenny's like, yeah, 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 mom. And he takes me downstairs into the basement. Their basement had basically just been converted into Lenny's record collection. And I'm, I'm assuming it still remains. It, he'd never gotten rid of any record that he'd been given or he'd bought. And, this, and he'd been DJing since the 80s, you know. And so this basement was just racked with different music. And we sat down there and he pulled out, you know, pulled out. Well, he was like, first of all, I got to tell you, the first industrial strength was Masculinium United. Um, one of the breakthrough tracks, We Have Arrived, which was a huge deal because it was licensed and turned through R&S and Richard James Aphex did a remix. Um, so he played me that. He started playing me Selected Ambient Works and then he threw me into the whole back Warp catalog and just uh, then showed me the techno movement and, and just went through historically record by record and patiently you know, told me different stories because he knew all these people personally and just, it was really life-changing for me and it just made me, it made me a convert, and you know, overnight. And by extension, was Compact on your radar at that point? Not at all, no. Uh, Wolfgang was because uh, we did, um, I think it was because of that, I kind of Compact was closer to the end, um, I mean, closer to the end of my time at Kuiperina, but there was this um, compilation called Microscopic Sound that was curated by Taylor Dupree. And it was, uh, it featured Wolfgang, it had Thomas Brinkman, um, and it had also the, it had uh, Ryoji Aikida, Carson Nicolai, and this stuff was just like, to be honest, it couldn't have been more minimal sounding. It was just like, you know, it was very left field. It was very, very difficult for me to promote. Barely anyone would even, you know, pay attention to it but I fell in love with the aesthetic of it and the sounds that were coming from it and it really had it was something very different and new and that's something that really gravitated towards me because I'd never heard anything like it before. Yeah I was going to say because ostensibly that's quite a move away from the um, the scene and the situation you were describing to me before. Absolutely it couldn't have been any more opposite and I think that's what also was fascinating to me because my head had been filled with you know, uh, distorted kick drums for a few years, and, which I still love to this day. But at the same time, you know, there, there comes a point where you reach a limit, you know. And uh, so you'd mentioned to me earlier how uh, you'd first had contact with Wolfgang. Yeah. Uh, how do you go from that phone conversation to be under his <clears throat> employment? Yeah, like at the time I was working at Kuiperini, you know, uh, Akim Zapansky runs Force Inc. and Mel Plateau approached me about... Um, finding a publicist who could work on the music and that microscopic sound compilation that Taylor had put together contained a lot of artists that or music that was from the Mill Plateau label so I was really at that time very intrigued so I sat down with Yara and I said like look is there any way that I could do this on the side and she was very supportive and she was like yeah as long as it doesn't interfere with your day-to-day -day here why not it was a good move because I ended up having to you know, leave, and I've, it ended up becoming my full-time job working for Mill Plateau. But uh, yeah, Akim sent me a bunch of box of promos, and uh, I remember getting it, and I was like, "Gas Pop and uh, SND 
uh, debut album, Make Send. So I went out enthusiastically, sent the promos out and contacting all these magazines that really didn't want to hear anything about it. People were really, really charmed and, and really impressed with the Gas Pop album. It seemed, it was honestly one of the first times I'd gotten proper, you know, feedback and interest. So I was quite excited about it. And I call up Akim and I'm like, look, I've got all these interview requests. You know, it's amazing. Like, you know, um, when can Wolfgang do these? And uh, he's like, well, you should ask Wolfgang yourself. And I was like, okay. Um, so he sends me his number. I get on the phone with Wolfgang. I mean, I call this number and I hear like, hello, compact. And I'm like, hi, is Wolfgang there? And he's like, yes, this is Wolfgang. And I was like, oh, well, hi, Wolfgang. This is John Barry. I'm working now with Force Inc. No Plateau doing their publicity. And he's like, okay. And uh, I was like, hey, I've got all these interviews for you. And he's just like, what? And he's like, I will not be doing any press whatsoever. I'm very sorry that you've wasted your time here, but I would prefer that there's no press at all. And uh, so I hastily was very apologetic and said to him, I was like, well, I'm very sorry. And uh, and he's like, no, no, I don't see this being any problem. He's very polite to me and gracious on the phone and uh, get off the phone with him. And I was just very dumbstruck, first of all, because this was the first time I've ever really dealt with someone who really didn't want to have any press. And uh, and at the same time, I got very intrigued and fascinated with as to why. And that made me go in further into learning about what his history was. And then I realized I'd, at that time, I had no idea his one of his aliases was Mike Inc. And, uh, um, and, and I'd actually known a fair amount of that music because it was very abrasive and hard acid. Um, and I'd associated a lot of that through some of the tracks that Lenny had been playing back in my day there. So... When I started linking everything, I was like, wow, he in a way comes similar. We're all kind of, I'm coming from the same lineage in a way of interest in that. And uh, I sent over to him some of the reviews, I remember, and, uh, that came in. And uh, he, he called me, I think, again. And, and, and over the course of the years to come, we stayed in, in uh, occasional contact. Um, I also, on the Mill Plateau label, we released an album by Sturm, um, which is uh, well, Reinhard Voigt and one of his aliases. It's this very dark, brooding, atmospheric techno that came out on the, uh, through, the, through the Mill Plateau label. So I got to know his brother as well. Um, he, was, he was quite okay with the press and everything, is, but it, and we got speaking to each other and got to know each other during that campaign. Um, but yeah, that's kind of that's how I started. That's how I met them, at least. And how does Compact come into this? When when did you kind of come uh, under their employment? Uh, how did I come to their employment? Well, um, I ended up moving from New York up to Montreal um, in two thousand and one, just before actually everything went down. Um, you know, on nine eleven, um, and uh, I was still working for Four Sync and Mill Plateau, um, and. Uh, and you know, through that period, things in two thousand and I guess it was two thousand and three. Um, yeah, it was September, I guess, two thousand and three. Um, I I got involved. I got. I heard that there was interest from um, Martin, one of the he's still uh, Michael Myers' booking agent, saying that hey, the guys are really interested to come over and play. So I helped put together a show in Montreal, a show in Detroit um, for the guys and uh, from Reinhardt and Michael. And uh, yeah, I remember like 
I, I'd never really um, heard a lot about Michael I, because of the Four Sync history. I'd actually kind of, Akim had kind of desisted me from speaking with Michael. Or, and he, yeah, I just never really, he'd never really come into my radar, weirdly enough. Um, so I was kind of meeting him blind and I'd spoken with Reinhardt, obviously. So when they got into Montreal, um, you know, I met the guys and we just, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was like we were old friends, you know, it was, a, it was just, a, it was a really cool experience um, to meet them and, to, you know, yeah. And at, at that point, um, we went down to Detroit, actually Deadbeat was on board as well for that show and uh, had a crazy time. I remember like, you know, Seth Troxler was like a kid, him and Ryan were like kids in the crowd, you know, jumping around. And it was just, it was just a very important moment. And I, I got really at that point exposed to, you know, watching Michael DJ and he was uh, very, uh, for me, it was one of the more impressive moments for me watching and experiencing a DJ because I, I, I got exposed to that sound of compact properly. And, and I'd heard little bits and pieces, but to hear it in a set put together just really blew my mind. And it, it, it uh, yeah, it was a big moment for me. Um, when did you make the move to Europe? Oh, God, I made the move to Europe in 2007, I think it was. Yeah. So you'd already been, you'd continue to work with them up until that point. Yeah, well, what happened was it's like that with with Compact, um, at around that time, Mill Plateau and Forsyth closed down. Um, once again, I was out of a job and I was wondering what I was doing. And uh, um, at the time, I was doing some publicity. I was doing PR for Kids 606 on the side. And uh, he at the time was doing really, he was doing very well uh, at the time. And uh, I really, really loved working with Miguel. And we'd had a really good role uh, with the PR. And uh, he didn't want to see that end. And he'd, he had Tiger Beat 6. And he was just like, look, I need someone to take care of the publicity. Um, I'd befriended T. Romschmira. And uh, T. Romschmira, Marco was like, look, I mean, he came through Montreal around the same time. And he's just like, dude. I'll give you a little bit of money if you want to do publicity for Shit Catapult. And I was like, huh. And then Miguel spoke with, he, I'd done PR for this, um, his album on Ipecac, which is Mike Patton's label. And uh, he was like, look, let me have a word with those guys and see if they've got projects for you. And they were working on some stuff. So that really allowed me to launch my own PR firm. So I started this company, Regenerative Industries, in 2003, 2004. And... Uh, and then within a year, I'd done a couple more tours with Wolfgang and, and Reinhardt. And uh, yeah, they, they were kind of like, look, I was like, look, I'd really love to do publicity. There's a demand here. And, and at that time, there was a mail-out service that Forced Exposure were doing. And there was a guy, David Day, there, really, really enthusiastic. And he was a big part of bringing a lot of uh, German and European uh, electronic music to the press as well. And... Uh, yeah, so at that point, um, remember, again, Wolfgang calls me and he's like, look, I think we're ready now to do publicity. We're going to bring you in and uh, and and we'd like to have you as, a, you know, and I, so I had them as a client. What was the pitch you were making to publications? Like, what was the, what was the angle that you were projecting of, of what these guys were about, would you say? I really wanted to bring out the humanity behind what they were doing, the passion, uh, the thing that really resonated and still resonates with me about Compact is that 
It's a family business. Um, it's friends who made music that wanted an outlet to be able to release their music, and they wanted to do it themselves. They there went that there'd been a there'd been a real uh, there there was a distributor called IFA EFA um, out of Hamburg that really had monopolized and controlled worldwide the distribution for many of the core labels worldwide uh, from dance music. And it, and when they went bankrupt. Um, Force Inc. really was one of those labels that really took a heavy beating. It almost put, it bankrupted a number of labels and it really, it was very much uh, the beginning of, you know, what would soon become, you know, a period of, of tougher times for a lot of, uh, you know, electronic music labels out there. Um, and I think Compact, I was really, really enthused with the fact that Compact had set up on their own this self-distributed um, you know, record store and imprint and, and just the aesthetic of how they were doing it and, and how they, they weren't, you know, there was no rules really. They, they were able to, and they were, the way that they were de developing it and letting it grow was happening very organically. Um, nothing seemed like it was uh, marketed or you know, preconceived. It just, they let things happen, which was something I found fascinating. And it, and it was becoming very successful. Uh, you know, it had become very successful, I should say. And I think one of the more interesting things that came out of the um, recent oral history we did was um, kind of Wolfgang uh, talking about this idea he had of Compact being this almost like factory style um, cultural commune, if you like. Yes. Do you feel like that idea developed in the way they sort of envisaged? Did that kind of come to come to pass? Yes, I, I think, I, you know, like we 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 are that creative infrastructure that, you know, I think that we have all the different facets to not only create art, but as music or, you know, even visual art for that matter, with Wolfgang's interests in visual art today. Um, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that I've, I feel that Compact's very much succeeded in creating, yeah, and you know, his, his world dream of, of, of really applying you know, techno and electronic music and creating a support system and the mechanism to be able to really, you know, uh, deliver that to, to the world. Mm. I mean, is it uh, is it something that's kind of palpable, do you think? Like when you would first started working with them, was it very clear what their mission was? I think, yeah, like to me, I think their mission was just, you know, um, I think for, they, they brought me in not because they wanted to become famous in America. They just they were probably just getting more tired of the persistent calls and requests that were being fielded their way into Cologne and, and, and wanted to have someone that they trusted able to tell the story. Um, I, I guess back to what you were originally asking, you know, um, you know, a lot of my pitches directly um, were really surrounding the fact that, you know, I, I, I took a liking in a way to the, to, there was this old, there still is this old Washington DC punk label discord, which was, you know, kind of this infrastructure uh, set up by Ian Mackay uh, from Minor Threat. And, and, and over the years that, that they were able to really develop a, a label and, and get their music out there and, you know, support their artists internally in that, within that DC community. I saw that kind of family values application being applied there, and that's something that really grounded me. But I saw something a lot, a lot more. You know, um, the, they're 
the value of you know the the DIY aesthetic and the fact that more and more labels were coming into the distribution structure. You know, at the time that I started getting involved, I think that they had around forty labels already that they were distributing worldwide, and and we, uh, you know, and to this day, you know, we continue that. I, I think um, I think having and and then obviously with the booking agency um, and and the development of the record label and, you know, the events that the compact continues to do, those, those all really tie into, a, you know, the creation of a greater whole and as an infrastructure. And um, on the sort of personal level, how did your um, role develop? I guess like I, I hit a wall doing PR. Um, I just, I, I felt that this was around 2005. Um, I was representing a, a chunk of European techno and house music that was coming over. Um, I felt though that I was, you know, there, there was a small group of writers and, and journalists and, and editors that were really out there supporting the music at that time. And it was very limited, but I always felt like I was kind of preaching to the converted and uh, you know, what the, the exploration of, of, of really pushing forward. And, and a lot of the, other publications that we really wanted to get into would invariably have very little interest because of space or because of, uh, you know, just a lack of interest or understanding of the music at that time. Um, so I, I kind of reached a wall. And uh, I, I remember at that point, I, I, I was really considering getting out of the music industry as a whole. And uh, I remember Michael came over to do a tour and I was traveling with him and I told him this and I was like, look, dude, like, I, I don't think I can do this any longer. And he's like, well, you, you can't leave, you know? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I think about it though. Maybe this is my time, you know? And he's like, well, look, don't, don't, don't consider that, you know? And then, uh, I remember he was like, why don't you come over to Cologne and meet everyone and everything? And, 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 uh, and Wolfgang gave me a call. So I came over and it was during um, Seal Pop. One of the, I think it was the first Seal Pop in Cologne. And there was this big compact party and I got to meet everyone. And I hung out with Wolfgang and we just, I just really got to experience what that family was. And I was just like, wow, I was really enthused about it. And uh, they didn't say anything to me at all or anything. They were just hanging out with me. But I, I had a feeling that potentially, you know, they were looking at, maybe bringing me in. So um, I came back and I said, to the, I said, to, I, I was on the phone with Michael about some stuff regarding, you know, the promo. And I said, like, look, dude, like, I'm really serious about this. I think I've got to stop uh, doing my company here. And then about 15 minutes later, I get a call from Wolfgang. And he's like, look, uh, you know, we're, we're really happy with what you've done. And uh, if you want to change, there's definitely some things that we could we see you working on here in Cologne. Um, namely, uh, we need someone to really go and develop our CD distribution department. And uh, so I was like, oh, Cologne, okay. And I was like, well, what the hell? You know, I have nothing else here. So in a way I felt like I was really, it was an opportunity. And, and, I, and obviously just being, having experience seeing how these people worked. And I was just thoroughly, I just, I just thought it was magic. And I was just, you know, I, was, I jumped on the opportunity. So I moved to Cologne um, back in 2007 and uh, in early 2007. And uh, yeah, and went in and 
it was my job, my kind of my task was to look at, go through the CD distribution department and uh, yeah, basically rebuilt the structure there in that and tried to enhance and obviously develop it, which, you know, I did for the, for the next two years. And I uh, assume your roles changed quite a bit since then. Yes. Um, the fact that I'd kind of jumped around in doing different jobs over the years, um, they there were a lot of things that I, I was able to really come in and, and um, help with. So, you know, my job at Compact, even today, really isn't a specific task at hand. It, it, it really surrounds um, dealing with developing or dealing with certain issues even that come up in any, any of the departments of the company, you know, uh, whereas there are you know, at, at Compact, there are people that have specific roles and tasks. Um, what happened was I, like, I was still in the CD distribution department. And, uh, I, yeah, we just decided, uh, I guess this was a few years ago, I was just like, look, you know, I'd love to get more involved with the label. For all the years, everyone at the company had always really dedicated themselves to the distribution department. It was a big focus with supporting the family. In a weird way, Compact as a label had always really run, in a sense, on a, as a secondary part of that machinery. You know, it was it was always obviously the music that came out was a priority, but we'd never really had a lot of time or effort to really, you know, go in as a proper label into the label. So, so we, we Michael and me made decisions, and I've since really focused myself on the task of the Compact label at hand, um, and and. Much of the company's really evolved, you know, towards that we have more people now, obviously, that concentrate their efforts on the development of the the record label today. Okay, so is that inclusive of things like A and R? Um, yeah, today, like Michael and Wolfgang, you know, the owners all play a key role in what's being released on the label. Um, I'm definitely involved in that process, and I, I've I've had the privilege to be able to bring projects to the table and. Um, a lot of my role at the company is dealing with, we have a huge roster, so it's dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis with many of the artists um, and, and, you know, obviously ensuring that we're, you know, setting up our releases, you know, through appropriate marketing and promotional efforts, you know, and then, and then obviously working together with our distribution and uh, our booking agency to make the most of hopefully selling and, you know, getting gigs for these artists. And what is a typical way in which Compact kind of source a new artist? Um, it can be anything from a CD that's sent to the office, um, an email with a download, you know, one of us on, you know, discovering something on SoundCloud. There's really no, there is no definitive method of how we, we find or get an artist, you know. Um, but you mentioned SoundCloud there, so you're, you're still um, focusing things outwards also. It's not like you receive so many demos that you basically wouldn't need to look yourselves. Yeah, like, you know, I, I think there aren't as many occasions today where we're actually going out and looking for talent. We actually have a really full house right now. You know, we've got a, we've got a great family right now. And I think overgrowing that family will inevitably, you know, not benefit anyone in the long run. So we've kind of the last year has 
I mean, this year has been really based on concentrating not only on our anniversary, but also on, uh, you know, on the artists that we have at hand in our family right now. And you're also involved in um, artist management. Yes. And who do you look after? Um, <clears throat> managing Matias Aguayo, The Field, um, Michael Meyer, and uh, then I'm also doing production management for Ewan, Ewan Pearson. I mean, how strategic do you have to be about those type of things? It's it is there is a lot of strategy that goes into it. You know, there's there's a lot of you know. I think today, especially in dance music, there you know, in any music for that matter, it, it's very difficult to to stay on the radar of what the public dictates as being interesting to their ears. You know. Um, I don't necessarily think that marketing is everything, but on the other side, you know, it's it's, there is an unfortunate predicament that that is playing a, an important role in the process and development of an artist. Um, you know, music today isn't everything, unfortunately, for for how people can, um, you know, ex uh, not experience how how they can um, explore and uh, um, find music, you know, discover music. When you kind of mentioned there the um, shifting tides of like public opinion and uh, one of the interesting things that came out of the oral history piece was and you said that signing the field in Gibraltar around 2007 was almost like a, a watershed moment. Yeah, it, it was right as I came in and uh, it, was an, it was an interesting period. I, I, I wasn't so aware. I will say that there were some really amazing records that were released on the label before then. Um, but it was a very interesting, pivotal moment because I think they, there was a lot of North American where there was a lot of attention being put on Compact at the time and um, being involved a lot in the media. You know, like we had a lot of bigger magazines, interviews were being done, you know, the, the owners were talking um, and, and there was a bit of a what comes next moment. And, uh, and yeah, you know, two very different artists, you know, like the field he came up with these three singles prior or two singles prior to the release of his album. And for me, I was, I, I just really gravitated to what, what he was doing. And I found something I've been always very fascinated, I guess, coming from a, a more, you know, coming from a punk rock background, I was always kind of, I had a hard time really comprehending why the scenes were so separated, why there was, it was like kids are either into electronic music or they're into indie music or they're into punk music. Everything was so genre specific and even house and techno, everything. I was just like, where, where's that gray area? Why am I living in this gray area? Why do I go to a, a record shop and buy all this music? And then there were more and more people coming out of the woodwork and saying, uh, you know, it was almost like coming out of the closet. Yeah, I listen to techno. It's not a dirty word. And and I think the, what the field really did with, with, with his album was was really conjoined so many different elements and 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 it just had such a, a wonderful uh, effect on on the public and and it was amazing to be a part of that moment to to see you know how a breakdown per se you know at one point a real breakdown of how people really perceived uh dance music you know yeah, I mean, to, to put things, I guess, in very, very simple terms, do you think that kind of um, signaled a, a focus towards the album format for you as a label? Yes, I think, I think there was. We were moving more and more towards that. There was a, there was a demand for more albums. I think the, the label was 
definitely focused on albums because it's an important release point for an artist. You know, like it, it, it constitutes so many different variables apart from just releasing an album so someone can tour. It's, it, it really is a, an artistic expression and, and it often differs from a single. Um, I find that's the beauty of uh, electronic music per se is the expressionism of like, of emotion, you know, and, and an album I find is, you know, definitely a defining uh, moment for an artist, you know, um, and how people relate to it. Um, it's unfortunate that in some ways today, you know, albums get broken apart and, and, and that has become much more of a focus, particularly in modern, you know, house and techno today. Would you say that it's kind of gone hand in hand with, with a sort of more quote unquote indie focus? I mean, you you kind of also mentioned the piece that you've been signing more uh, bands in recent years. Yeah, that years. was that was actually, you know, that was that was then in a way, um, you know, like Compact. I really feel like Michael and the owner's focus of interest don't really relate on waves of um, waves of movements of following trend or what it dictates. It's really been very much about um, what interests them what they're finding interesting and and obviously the the how how those links break into the trends that are out there today they come and go you know how steadfast that compact remains in terms of it's not selfishness it's just more of we do what we do and i think you know that the music that comes out in the certain periods may they may not um they may not necessarily dictate trend but at the same time they, they're definitely appreciable for their time. And I think that what's really characterized with a lot of the catalog is that there's a timelessness to that music. And I think that's something that will, you know, at least coming out the label as a fan and also, you know, I should say as a worker, that's something I, I deeply appreciate because there's so much music out there today that is temporary, that, that's, that's flash in the pan that you know, maybe people will come back to in ten years, but the, there really isn't that kind of uh, longevity to it. And um, speaking of longevity, and you've definitely mentioned it, you've just um, as a label turned twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you've been marking the anniversary this year? Yes. Um, well, the first one was just happened last month. There was a in Geneva Compact set up a pop up store. And then there was a big event surrounding it. Um, the the goal this year is to set up events in different cities around the world and bring that re- record store, you know, bring the compact record store, which is really the fundamental, uh, you know, foundation of of what the business is, and and really bring that to to different cities and you know show people that. Um, you know, there there are also a number of releases that have come out. We just for record store day, we just reissued the first compact record from Jurgen Papa Triumph and uh, remastered it sounds wonderful now and and then uh, Wolfgang did a, um, a Mike Inc is dead remix he's kind of coining he's he's revived Mike Inc in the different guys but uh, yeah which is always interesting do you have like a personal theory on why the label has been as successful as it has been I think that we've just got a great group of musicians to work with we you know i'm always you know i really feel honored to work with the people that i do they're 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 wonderful human beings each of the owners are very individual but they all characterize um a different element that makes up a greater whole and 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 the value of of an artist i think 
many of the artists that remain and are have been with Compact for so many years, um, the the pride and the the feeling of family that that they often reciprocate to me is is uh, you know it's very moving and it's something that I you know I you, I see obviously many different record labels out there, but I think given the you know, like someone like Matias Aguayo, he's really been, he's been working with the label for, you know, over a decade, you know, and that's, he's gone through so many different phases and, and to see him still, you know, we now work with him on his Komame imprint and we've really, you know, we have these abilities to really allow people to move into their, you know, and to grow and to develop. And I think that, I think that openness of, uh, as a, you know, a predominantly, uh, known label as being minimal techno which god knows why we are known as that but it, it's uh, to be to be called that i find i find that very fascinating and interesting and wonderful so as you do go into a third decade of operation kind of what comes next and has that been a topic of conversation for you for you mm -hmm. guys well michael said it best the best is yet to come you know and that's the you know the true the true path of compact and the thing that i really enjoy about working for the company is that there's um there, there is never a, a, a finite uh, uh, decision made on any path that we take. Um, you know, there, there is this open, you know, the, the, books, the books never closed. Um, and, and uh, you know, I just hope that we're able to continue releasing great music and, you know, getting it out to people and, and developing it, in the, you know, in a way that, you know, obviously that the artists want to be uh, perceived by. And, and, uh, and, and continue spreading the message, you know. I'm floating free, I'm floating free, I'm floating free, I'm floating free, I'm floating free. Between the stars, between the stars, between the stars, between the stars, between the stars. There is no night a day, no night a day, no night a day, no night a day, no night a day. Planet E is far away, is far away.